Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, July 9th. The most amazing part of the tennis world. You can host an every weekday podcast, and you can still feel like you've fallen behind all of the topics, all of the emerging, shifting narratives from throughout the tennis world. And to be honest, that's a bit how I'm feeling here on this Thursday because there are really so many different components of the tennis world to follow in this moment. Of course, we are all hoping that professional tennis can make its return in 2020. And of course, ATP, WTA, ITF sanctioned events as of now look like they will be making their return come August, but there are still so many moving pieces, right? Can we get the testing to a place where players will feel comfortable showing up on site? Of course, if a player tests positive on site, we still aren't sure exactly what we want to do as a tennis community, whether we want to discontinue the event altogether, remove that player from the draw and keep going. Of course, where these events are actually going to be played, given that the sport is an international sport and there are international travel restrictions between countries right now, given the varying levels of COVID-19 within each different part of the globe. There are a lot of things for us to be considering. Of course, the college tennis world and the financial implications of this global pandemic on college sports, its immense impact on the sport of tennis in particular at the collegiate level. And, you know, this feels like it was three years ago, but you can see all these various players still. There are seniors across the country who are still weighing whether they're going to come back to get the senior season they deserve versus going pursuing whatever post-college career aspirations they have. And, you know, again, given the uncertainty the Ivy League yesterday announcing that they're not going to be playing fall sports. And, you know, you can go on and on and on. The fact that we learned this morning that, you know, all internet, all sporting events may be cha- uh, canceled in China, all international sporting events, I should say, may be canceled until 2021. The implications for that on the WTA, of course, the announcement of the new brand new event in top C at the top C tennis club in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I mean, I could go on and on, folks, just getting bits and pieces, the ACC announcing that it's probably not going to allow fall sport competitions until at least September 1st. And, you know, again, I could go on and on and on about all the various storylines. World Team Tennis, I forgot about World Team Tennis. World Team Tennis on the horizon as well. And then there's still exhibitions too, right? Dominic Team and Team 7 that are playing, I believe, in Kitzbühel right now. Uh, I actually went and watched some tennis last night from like I don't know, 12.30 to 1.30 a.m. I watched Rublev Team. Who else did I watch? I watched some UTS. I got to see Berrettini uh, play a little bit of action. I got to see Tsitsipas in action. I was watching, trying to catch up on my exhibition tennis. I think I caught the tennis bug again uh, after being around these live events for the past 10 days. But, you know, there's the Jill Simone interview. There's, of course, Donna Vekic and her coach breaking up. There's Novak Djokovic getting defensive and all of these people getting defensive, all of these various players 
there's Nick Kyrgios going on and saying what he went to, uh, you know, further criticizing of players and, you know, Robin Soderling talking about the struggles with mental health he had during his career. And then, of course, Diana Yastremska doing, and I apologize for swearing this early on, stuff, but Diana Yastremska doing whatever the f- Diana Yastremska thought what she was doing was a good idea, uh, you know, on Twitter today with her posting of that photo. And it's just the tennis world is a chaotic place, folks. It is very fluid. There are so many moving narratives, storylines. Of course, we also learned yesterday there were pieces of I mentioned the Ferrer's Vera of coaching thing yesterday. But, you know, which entities were taking PPP loans from the United States government, then, you know, the financial implications becoming more and more clear from the professional tennis world of this global pandemic. Uh, That's a topic that deserves its own podcast as well. The point is, the reason I list all of those topics for you listeners is to say uh, there is a lot going on in the tennis world. And so hopefully you've been following along on our podcast and you know, we're going multiple p- platforms wide this week on the Cracked Interviews podcast, trying to run all the interviews we did in Miami and Nicholasville over the past 10 days. Got 14 of the 16 players on camera. You can go see those in video form on our YouTube channel. You can also hear them in podcast form by ensuring that you are subscribed to the Cracked Interviews podcast. And again, I, I don't want to give you specific dates for specific interviews. Some of that's still unclear on our end. I can say there are going to be a lot of them over the next two weeks and so to ensure you don't miss any of that, you don't want to you know, miss out on Shelby Rogers, Riley Opelka, CeCe Bellis, Mackie McDonald, Stevie Johnson, Sam Query, on and on and on and on. Uh, just hit that subscribe button, and any time a new episode, a new interview gets released, you will be the first person uh, to hear about it. So go hit that subscribe button. Uh, but today on the podcast, it's a Thursday, and what does that mean? It means we get to continue our fantastic series focusing on the nutrition and health, its importance in tennis, with our friends from Aerobar with another edition of Getting to the Point here on the Mini Break Podcast. And I'm really excited to bring to you all today's guest because if you've listened to these Cracked Rackets podcasts, you know how big of fans we are of college tennis and you know, few schools in the men's college tennis Division One game have had more success over the past five years than the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. And we are really thrilled to be joined today by a former All-American Tar Heel himself, a guy who reached the semifinals of the 2006 U.S. Open men's doubles event, and a guy who now has returned to become the associate head coach of the UNC men's tennis team. Uh, Trip Phillips joins Mark, Andrew, and I on the show today to talk, of course, about the importance of nutrition and health. But you know, also about how he got his start in college tennis, what, you know, about the ascension of his Tar Heels program, what makes a great team great. And, you know, we ask him, of course, about some of the individual talents he's coached along the way and some of his coaching philosophies, working with head coach Sam Paul as long as he has, why that relationship has worked so well, of course, adjusting coaching and, you know, to the present reality we're all living in and his thoughts on the season resuming in 2021, if that's going to be possible, what his feelings are at right now. Uh, all of that and more. It's a fantastic conversation, I think, which you're all going to learn. Trip Phillips, uh, there's a reason he keeps getting all these top recruits along with Coach Paul to come to UNC, and it's because, you know, he's as charismatic of a, as a guy as you're going to find. Another great young face within the college tennis game. Uh, the sort of people you want molding the young athletes that have, you know, that go through college, the student athletes that go through there and either, you know, go 
want to succeed in the professional world in tennis or whatever other professional passions they end up pursuing. And so it's a fascinating conversation. I'm really excited for all of you listeners to hear it. Of course, the reason we are able to have all these incredible conversations here on the Mini Break Podcast day in, day out is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. And for more than 20 years, Midwest Sports has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers, uh, supporting tennis buyers across the globe by providing uh, a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. They also have one of the largest in-stock inventories of tennis equipment online with tens of thousands of products available for shipping directly from their automated warehouse to your front door. They value innovation and have personally tailored their products to highlight your skills on the court. And even if you don't know what those skills are or how modern equipment best accentuates your 1970s chip-and-charge style game, rest assured their well-trained staff are intimately familiar with all tennis equipment and can help you find that perfect racket, perfect shoe, or perfect tennis clothing that is sure to put you ahead of the competition. Their selections of equipment are consistently first to market, and they pride themselves in stocking their tennis warehouse with the newest products at the lowest prices. You can find all of these products, all of these prices, by going to their website, MidwestSports.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. Once you're there, you're going to use our promo code CR15 because not only will you get 15% off, you'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, to ensure you have everything you need to make your return to the court a successful one, Midwest Sports is going to throw in a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, uh, Midwest Sports wants to make sure you have everything you need to make your return to the court a successful one. So go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15. We are so grateful for their continued continued support. The least we can do is ask you to support them as well. We also ask that if you enjoyed these episodes, you want to learn more about Aerobar, or maybe you're just ready to try some yourself, go to their website, aerobar.com. I'm telling you, it's the perfect, delicious way to start your day. Uh, you can try chocolate chip. You can try the delicious cinnamon honey oat. They are really the fuel that got me through that 10-day trip on the road uh, for Cracked Rackets. And, you know, you go to their website, Midwest, uh, aerobar.com, excuse me, you use our promo code CRACKED15, you'll get 15% off your order. And so, you know, not only are you going to get a deli- delicious uh, alternative to start your day, you don't want to start your day full. And, you know, we all enjoy a good brunch, but let's just be realistic. You can't enjoy a work day on a Wednesday after having brunch. You're just going to be miserable all day long. You're going to feel delightful if you start your day with the ingredients, the nutrition behind the Aerobar. So go to Aerobar.com. Use that promo code CRACKED15. All right. With that being said, enough chit-chat. Let's get to this week's episode of Getting to the Point, our conversation with UNC Men's Tennis Associate Head Coach, Trip Phillips. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
Joining us on the podcast today is a former All-American for the UNC Tar Heels. He reached a career high of number 29 in the ATP's doubles rankings, topping everything off with two titles and a semifinal appearance in the 2006 U.S. Open. Of course, then he headed back to Chapel Hill, where he is now the associate head coach of the men's tennis team. I also hear he is the king of karaoke. Trip Phillips, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? <laughs> That is uh, quite the intro and uh, true on those counts, but uh, doing very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure, of course, and I know you and Mark go back a little bit, so I want to give Mark the first uh, question here. Tell me your impression about a young Trip Phillips game, and then we'll go from there. I mean, I recall him always beating me, but I don't know that that means he was any good because I was not at that age. Um <laughs> I feel like I definitely had him in the, you know, in the racket breaking categories and the creative explosions on the court. No, he was just, uh, he was solid, and uh, and I was, I was not. Um, that's the best best way to describe it. Yeah. All right, Coach Phillips. Well, then I know you are from uh, Carolina, I believe, Charlotte Country Day School. If your Wikipedia is accurate, but you know, was tennis always a big part of your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As far back as I can go. Yeah. Mark and I grew up even before Charlotte. I lived in Midlothian, uh, Brandermill uh, in Virginia. We grew up in the same neighborhood. And so we were we were battling like at age five. So, yeah, I, I started at four and um, yeah, just loved the game and played a lot of sports, um, you know, growing up. But uh, tennis was always sort of number one. And, and obviously, uh had to drop the others as I went, and, and yeah, but ten tennis has always been uh, a big part of my life, for sure. My follow-up to that was, you know, in your role now as the associate head coach of the team, and you and Coach Paul obviously have built quite the program, when you're talking to the caliber of player you guys are bringing to UNC, you know, does it help that, again, you went through many of the similar experiences that they are now going through? Um, yeah, I hope so. Um, <laughs> You know, like I, for, for them, you know, I think it, it's easy for me to recruit to North Carolina because it's been such a big part of my life that, that I can speak about it sort of, you know, very passionately and truly for what, what it did for me. And for a lot of those guys, you know, they're, they're about to go to college and then uh, many of them have aspirations for pro tennis after. And, um, yeah, I've kind of already already done all of that. So, um you know, my goal and our hope is, is certainly that, that we could help mentor them along the way to, to help them reach whatever their dreams and goals are. And for you uh, going to Carolina, I know you eventually did live in Charlotte, uh, but how did you end up there? You know, what brought you to Chapel Hill? Yeah, it's funny because now uh, uh, I am all in on the heels and, and obviously love the place, but growing up, um, I was not, not a UNC fan at all. Um, no real affiliation kind of when I went through the, the process, like it sort of snuck into my, my list of visits and, uh, yeah, I'd never been to Chapel Hill before my visit, but when I came, I just sort of fell in love with the place and, um, immediately had a great relationship with, uh, coach Paul and, uh, yeah, the rest is sort of history. And for you there, uh, you know, was there a moment during your, I mean, was there a certain moment during your time in, in college, in school, when you thought to yourself, 
hey, I might pursue this professionally. Yeah, I, you know, I always sort of had a dream that I that I wanted to be like a pro tennis player, and and I always did did well in the juniors. I was top, you know, five ten in the country um, in my second year, the whole way through. So, you know, I was certainly good, but you know, there wasn't. I, I didn't play that many ITFs or anything like that growing up. And um, for me, going to college was more uh, pro tennis was in the background and something that I was I was hoping at the end of my time might be a realistic option for me. Um, but I, I really didn't know um, if that was going to come to fruition. And it was um, kind of during my time at UNC that that dream got stronger and stronger. And um, I really progressed and, and felt like at the end that uh, I really owed it to myself to give it a shot. Yeah, no, and I think you definitely made the right decision, and I do want to talk about your pro career, but I do want to dwell a little bit on some 90s college tennis because you look back at the caliber of player that college tennis was producing, and, I mean, so many champions. I think they may—I believe the Bryans overlap with your time, right? And those are the headliners, but there are guys like Todd Martin who come through. I know Mal Washington was a little bit before your time, but, I, you know, uh, the Smiths both coming in during that time from UNLV. 90s college tennis fairly loaded right coach Phillips I mean obviously not loaded in the fact that Mark Aerosmith's able to end up on a division one roster but outside of that pretty pretty good uh caliber players if I had to sum up uh 90s college tennis in one word I would say Aerosmith (laughs) yeah that's right you know that would be the first word that comes to mind but no it was I, I remember uh a year above me was like Jan Michael Gamble and Paul Goldstein and Cecil Mamet. Um, then my year, Justin Gimmelstab, uh, the Bryans. Uh, I think Alex Kim was a year behind me. I mean, yeah, it was a bunch of guys who kind of went on and, and did something. Um, and, and, yeah, college tennis, you look back, it was, uh, it was pretty loaded up. And I'd like to point out that he, that he did not mention Mike Russell. I'd just like to point that out. Oh, Mike Russell, he was a year behind me. Yeah, sorry about that, Mike. No, no worries. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that that just happened. Yeah, no. And I guess, you know, the reason I want to bring that up is because now is when you're, you know, talking to kids and if they're not convinced that college can be a pathway to the pros, I guess the argument I would make is it's been a pathway to the pros for quite a bit of time, hasn't it? I think it has been, you know, and – um yeah, they're, they're especially, I think, uh, if, you, if you ever recruit uh, international players, there seems to be a stigma where, where they, they grew up sometimes hearing that maybe it's not a pathway. Um, and, and it's probably believed with, with some of the, the American players as well. I just think maybe they have um, a little greater knowledge of all the good players that have come through. And so, you know, they do at least see to some degree how it can be a great option. But uh, without a doubt, you know, and, and – from the depth and everything else, even from the, the 90s, uh, I feel like it's only become more and more of a, of a better route. Um, just with the average age, I would imagine, uh, is a couple years later now in the top 100 than it was back then. Uh, that was sort of when you were old at, at age 30, where that's that's really not the case anymore. And um, I also think the, uh, the qual- I had five assistant coaches back in the day. You know, they, they weren't really investing in that second coach. And now you look at there's some there's some great coaching as well in college tennis, which hopefully uh, has increased the chances of it being that, that pathway. 
Mm -hmm. No, and I definitely want to talk about that as well for you personally, as you mentioned, you know, you become an All-American as a senior, you go on to the Pro Tour and, you know, you end up being a top 30 ATP doubles player. I'm curious for you, when did the two-handed backhand smash become one of your, you know, feature shots? I got to, uh, I got to attribute the, the invention of that and, and, and thank you for the shout out for the two-hander. Um, <laughs> it's been an important part of my life for, for quite a while now. No, it was, uh, we used to just mess around. It goes back, I'm giving that to, to Huntley Montgomery, uh, played at Virginia and was a great friend of mine on tour, and Ryan Satchery uh, from Notre Dame. We started out, and we would just start screwing around in, in the warm-up um, and just trying some some trick shots here and there. And I just started to figure out that I could I could hit my two-handed backhand overhead actually harder than, than my regular overhead. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so just over the course of time, I'd kind of mess around with it. And I was like, you know what? Like, this is, this is something I can actually use here. And then especially, like, later in my career when I shifted into doubles, if, if it was ever through the middle and kind of high, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would go to that one. So then that's obviously not a natural shot, not something that you would say is you teach as a coach. So when one of your players say it's a, I feel like Ben Seguin must screw around in practice or Blumberg when you're that talented. I'm sure you try things when they're messing around. Are you encouraging them? Are you saying, oh, yeah, I love that creativity? Or are you like, guys, come on, low middle solves the riddle? It depends. There's a time and a place, I guess. There's a time and a place. Blum's got a pretty good one. If, I, if I'm giving shout, I got to go Brett Clark. Brett Clark has <laughs> two-handed backhand overhead we've had. He actually uh, – his was game ready. He, he used it in competition a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I look, Robert Kelly was a guy, like, he had to have creativity, and it was a big part of why he was so good. And uh, Matt Kiger's a little bit of the same way. So, for, for the guys that just – it's a big part of their game, maybe you give them a little more leeway. But – um, you know, and there, there's the times of practice uh, where everybody's just having a little fun, uh, and in those windows. But yeah, if they're if they're pulling out the trick shots uh, in the middle of a serious practice, that does not uh, does not usually go well. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm glad that you find that balance. And you know, again, I, I well, I feel like since we're on that term, I feel, and you know, I've talked to a lot of players. We've been fortunate enough to speak to players on the UNC team, and I always have to ask them because. You know, we've had Coach Paul on the podcast before. I've been fortunate enough to get to chat with him a little bit. I feel like the yin-yang aspect of your relationship, the contrast between the two of you, it's pretty stark. And so I guess, you know, working with Coach Paul as long as you have, you know, going to work back at UNC as part of the men's team, you know, what attracted you to the job? And then ultimately, I'm sure given the success you've had, there have been other offers. Why stick around UNC as long as you have? Yeah, so sort of in that regard, um, yeah, I, I, Coach and I have been together for a, for a long time, and, and we are the best of friends, and, and what he's done for my life is, is amazing, and, and yeah, I love him, and uh, he, he's a huge part of the reason why I came here in the first place as a player, um, and a huge part of the reason why I trained here, kind of my whole pro career, basing out of here, still working with him, and uh, certainly a big part of the reason why I came back. Um, you know, for me, I, I'd been playing on tour for, for a while, and I was doing well, and I was getting to play uh, most of the biggest tournaments sort of in the world. Um, but I was also just starting to get to a stage at some point where traveling 35 weeks a year was not something that 
uh, I wanted to do forever. Um, and so I, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do after. I had never thought about this job uh, even a little bit, uh, mostly because the guy that was in this job before me uh, was Don Johnson, who's similar background, played at UNC, trained a 13-year career here. He got the number one in the world in doubles, won Wimbledon finals, U.S. Open. Um, he was a big mentor for me along the way as well. And the first thing he wanted to do when he was done with his career is come back and be a part of this program. And I thought that he'd be here forever. Um, but his wife is a, a doctor, and she got an incredible job offer in Atlanta, and they were leaving. And Sam called me um, and just said, look, I just I have to just lob it out there. You know, are you interested? And, um, you know, I said, yeah, as much as I would be possibly interested, no. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to play for a couple more years, and I'm, you know, doing too well right now to think about it. But once that started to marinate, you know, I really realized that um, I might want to play for another year or two, and, and I could see myself being happy as a part of this program for the next, you know, 35 years. And so the more I thought about it, the more I just decided that um, it was it was something that I, I really wanted to be a part of. You know, it's a place that I really believe in, and it's a place that gave me so much. Um, when I got married, Coach Paul was in my wedding. You know, we we he, he really invested in me, not just as a tennis player, but um, just as a person. And, and that's that's, in my opinion, his best attribute as a coach. Uh, he's a great tennis coach, but how much he cares about the players um, on and off the court and the family atmosphere that he sort of has created here is something that's that's really special. And not only do I want to be a part of it, um, it's it's not something that I want to leave. So, yes, I, I probably have had some some good opportunities to to leave and go elsewhere. But to me, you know, any move I'd make from here. Uh, would not be one that I would view as, as upwards or even lateral. So, you know, Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill's, you know, home for me and my wife and my family, and we, we love it. Nice. That was actually a, a better job of recruiting than I've heard you do some other times right there. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but, but no, I mean, I know that you mean it. Um, no, I was going to say, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask, and I think we – to grow up in Richmond in a pretty unique situation. I don't know that the RTPA, you know, Tripp and I got the privilege as well as our, our sisters are both the same age and both played. Um, we got to play in a Richmond Tennis Patrons Association program where a couple times a week we were taken to a facility and we had free coaching from the best coaches in Richmond. Um, and you were not paying for it, so basically, if you didn't act correctly, you were out of there. Um, somehow, I stayed in there. Um, <laughs> and it's like, how much would you attribute? I mean, I think every person that I can think of that was in that program went on to play college tennis. Like, how, how much would you attribute, you know, that program to to your success? I know. I'd look. I definitely would. I mean, that that Richmond tennis back in the day was was incredible, and that was uh, such a amazing I, I do think there's something to be said for that environment you start in um and you know david caldwell wade mcguire i mean some of these guys ended up being um, absolutely phenomenal players and so many went on to be really good college players so uh, i think it was uh, a really 
kind of great environment and and it was the, the amount of talent sort of in that area at that time um certainly sort of paved the way uh i think you know set the foundation for 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 my game and i'm sure yours and um yeah between rtpa and tom Vazinilak. i don't know if you remember him oh yeah oh yeah but, yeah he helped me so much when i was uh when i was that age and um you know, certainly got me off to a great start, which I'm sure, uh, in the scheme of things, is very important. Yeah, there's some. I ran into Eric Womack. He's like the head of old tennis at Hilton Head Island right now. It seems like he was he was one of our coaches there as well. Um, yeah, no, I just I'm always trying to recreate that situation. I mean, I'm in Jacksonville, and I mean, obviously, yeah, I have some good players here now, but it is very few and far between in Jacksonville to have you know, high level college or junior players and we have like forty beautiful facilities and yeah, it's just hard to hard to recreate that RTPA thing. What uh the next thing I wanted to talk about obviously we've gotten back in touch a lot, you know, with your recruiting of of London who's gonna go there, you know, in a month or so. Like what like you know, a lot of junior players and their parents that listen to the podcast. Like what do you what do you think separates you know, the junior players that come into college from the guys that come out, you know, really, really ready to be a pro or at least competing at the highest levels in college. So what do they need to do in high school, you're saying? Yeah, just kind of what, sep- yeah, what separates them, you know, when you see them come in. Like, like a Will Blumberg from, you know, you know, obviously he's coming in after being four in the world in juniors, but there are guys that, you know, a, a tennis sangren when he came in and was at Tennessee. You know, he played three on the team, and then how does he become a 50 in the world player? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, it's sort of the guys. I mean, obviously, when you mention a Will, he, he's an exceptional talent, but uh, he's also just done so many things right. You know, there's he's sort of bought into the process of being good and. You know, Tennis Sangren had to go a long way, but I'm sure anybody that's been around him, I, I know tennis a little bit, but uh, I'm sure anybody that's been around him would, would look at his journey and just say he did enough things uh, right long enough. Like for me, Don Johnson, like I mentioned, was a, a mentor for me. He never made NCAAs in singles or doubles um, uh, while he was at UNC, uh, but he was a really, really hard worker and, you know, the lessons he taught me heading out on tour is like, listen, if you lose, you need to be the first guy at the courts the next day getting better, you know, and that's going to do two things. One, it'll help you get the mindset that I was the first guy I might have lost. I'm not the best this week, but I'm the first guy getting better. And also all those guys that are still in the tournament are going to see you leaving soaked in sweat uh, every single morning. And in a few weeks, you're going to be playing that guy in the third set. And he's going to remember that you're an animal. You know, and just ad- adopting a mentality and then kind of refusing to take no for an answer, you know, um, being being willing to handle the adversity and handle the tough moments that are inevitable. Um, and then, yeah, you got to have a, a little bit of game, I guess, as well to, to back it up. But uh, the mentality of things, Nick Monroe is an unbelievable example of that, like 60-something in the country, um, came through, finished as an All-American here at UNC and has had an amazing career. His nickname around here is the standard, uh, just because the way the guy does it every single day is at the highest possible level. And that's sort of how he has been able to carve out an amazing career for himself. 
Damn, my, my nickname was Substandard. Uh, now it's starting to make sense. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of nicknames that probably were not as flattering as the standard. Yeah, no, I got you. Um, you talking about the one ball, I mean, he's, he's you know, clearly one of the better players in the country in college. Like, what are the things other than talent, you know, that he has, has done done well and, and maximized? He, I mean, he's he's just an unbelievable kid, and and he's humble about about the way he approaches it. He's very appreciative. He he listens. He sort of analyzes things, and then and then he's really good at going and applying them. And so, you know, uh, over the course of time, he, he's went through quite a bit of adversity. His his junior year had two surgeries in twelve months, both kind of weird fluke injuries that you you couldn't have prevented and or seen coming. Um, but it was very tough on him, but the way he sort of grew and responded out of that is the way that I think great players sort of handle adversity, you know, and to watch him sort of grow up and learn and then take, take the hard times and have that be a big part of the reason why, you know, he was undefeated in college tennis when the, when the season stopped and playing some, some pretty unbelievable tennis, um, you know, and then he's obviously just an immensely talented talented guy as well you know he's just one of those guys that that you know walks in and, and is immediately the most talented guy in the room i think he he shot a 66 the other day uh, in golf like the guy just he uh, he is not hurting in the talent department but there's a lot of guys that maybe could match him in talent that i don't think will have a chance to to have the success he has just because of, of you know sort of what he's what he's made of and the way the way he goes about it yeah, no, 66 is awesome. Um, yeah, that's 40. Uh, I got that on my front nine. Yeah, see, I've done that on Tiger Woods Um, What are, you know, you talk about doing, doing things well. You know, we, we obviously are, are pretty focused on the nutrition and the fitness aspect um, with Aero Bar. Um, you know, how how does that play in with the success of your team and, and the individual players? Like, how focused are you guys are on the fitness and nutrition? Uh, it, it's an important part. I mean, I think, you know, if your goal is to be like a, an okay player, maybe you can get by with, with ignoring that part of it. Um, if you're actually trying to see how far you can, can take your game, then understanding the, the fitness, the nutrition, and all those things to me is, is paramount. And you, you see it more and more in any pro sport. Um, but a Djokovic jumps, I mean, all these guys, the, the attention to detail and and really sort of understanding that it's it's not just an enjoyment choice, it's a, it's a performance choice, um, you know, that side of it. And, and we get guys, some of the guys, you know, we, we have an incoming freshman who on his recruiting trip didn't want to eat a dessert because he had a tournament in two weeks. So you're, I, I loved that. A guy who was already very conscious of everything he's doing. And we get other guys that have only eaten hamburgers, you know, in their, in their life coming in. So what we try to do is sort of meet them where they are. Um, you might not take a, a guy that, um, you know, has eaten poorly his whole life and immediately transfer him to the most amazing diet that Djokovic is on. Um, but our goal is to have them constantly improving really all areas of their life and all areas of their game. Um, but for the guys that are pretty into it, I mean, we, we, we will take it as far as we can, as quick as we can. And for the guys that are a little slower to buy in, we, we really try to educate them and help them understand 
exactly how important it is and then and then help them to slowly make those changes yeah so if i if i can follow up to that let me just put you on the spot coach in your time as a tar heel who is the player who's maybe nutritionally taken the biggest leaps who by changing their diet actually saw just tremendous effects in their tennis game i'm going i'm going on that one I'm going Jack Murray, our uh, our volunteer assistant coach. Uh, came, to, came to school, and, and we used to joke about, is that your first dinner or your second dinner? Um, and he, he just, he just kind of, he really was taking no pride in that. And about halfway through his college career, he really slipped. And now, you know, kind of grew into one of the most nutrition-conscious players we've ever had. Um, it really helped him to transform his body, get quicker on the court, more agile, more endurance. Um, and, yeah, he finishes an All-American for us and clinched national indoors uh, the title when our team won it. Um, and I don't know that he could have could have done those things if he hadn't been willing to, to buy in. Um, and he, he was a great kid in all of those respects where um, he didn't certainly didn't come in perfect, but he was always willing to learn and always kind of, pushing himself outside of his comfort zone to get better. But uh, with him, like really buying into the nutrition uh, was kind of almost a turning point in, in his success. Trip, talk to me about how nutrition and fueling stations and all kinds of things from even all the way back to when you were recruited um, all the way till now, how, how you've seen a shift and how it's changed. It's, I, it's totally different. Um, you know, I, when I was coming along, I, I mean, I think people kind of talked about it, um, but it, it really, I don't remember it, uh, especially in my time in college. By the time I turned pro, I think I started to see it a little bit more, um, especially when you started getting up to the higher levels. Um, but in, in college, like when we were coming through, like it was like, hey, don't eat terribly. But uh, I don't know if a lot of people were taking pride in it. Um, to me, in some ways, it's a little bit like some of the mental training stuff, like no one was really that bought in on that. And now today, like it's, it's hard to be a successful professional athlete. Um, if you look at the, the Tom Brady's or Djokovic or any sport, you look at the guys who are the best and all of them have decided that the nutrition and, and the way you carry your body um, is like almost one of the most important things you can possibly do. Uh, and, and I think that's probably contributing to why that average age in the top hundred and guys are able to play so much longer, like the, the self-care of the body, uh, nutrition included, uh, is, is really aiding guys in their, in their careers. Yeah, we, uh, we had Jay, uh, we had Berger in, you know, a couple of weeks back and I mean, you know, Jay pretty well. And I mean, he, he had no problem, you know, kind of admitting and we discussed, I mean, we trained as hard or harder than any team in the country. He would destroy us physically. And then, you know, he'd hand us like a breakfast bar to eat on the court. You know, and it, and it wasn't that he was being lazy about it. We just, we, we didn't, nobody really knows like, here, take your banana, take your, you know, Quaker Oats bar, your peanut butter power bar, and, you know, and, you know we talked about just kind of how ridiculous it was that, we were doing, you know, having Pat Etcheberry come down and do the fitness and not just like putting a CVS to grab something to eat on the court. Yeah. Two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> yeah, that was. That Work was really hard. And then, and then, yeah, yeah, the, the science of it, 
the, the evolution of that over the last decade or so, I think is really changing, probably changing sports and, you know, changing the trajectory of, of, of how long guys can play and, and just, you know, yeah, certainly a game changer. Yeah. So Trip, to shift gears a little bit, um, the recruiting process, you know, I'm always intrigued how the recruiting process is changing again, back from the days you played and we're recruiting to now. I mean, kids are committing at such a young age. I mean, what's your thoughts on it? You know, what kind of, you know, how do you go about it now? I mean, it, it seems a lot more difficult now. I mean, you seem to have to be able to recruit kids a lot earlier. So yeah. and, you I'm know, glad it seems more that? difficult to you as well. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, does. I, it's one of those things. Like, I, I try to remember back to my own days at Kalamazoo. And, like, I definitely remember college coaches being there. Um, but I don't remember it being just like the, you know, the, like, circus it is today. Like, the intensity level and how many people are there. Um, like, I don't really remember. I, feel, I, I remember in my own process, and it could be that I was just a, you know, 17, 18-year-old kid and just not really paying attention and doing my own thing. And, and now I really notice, you know, that there's 120 coaches on site. Um, but, yeah, I don't remember it being that way. And they've also changed some legislation um, in terms of, you know, it used to be you couldn't start talking to somebody till the beginning of their sen senior year. You know, now you can start calling kids on June 15th after their sophomore year, like as they're rising juniors. Um, and there's unlimited phone calls where there used to be the one a week. And um, we don't we're never in danger of, of, of violating that one. But I know a lot of coaches like will, will really call a ton. And, and it's, uh, to me, it's, it's a lot on the recruits as well, um, because, you know, you're at a, a formative age then and it's a lot of information and it's a lot of decisions. <laughs> you know, I make those calls and I'm like, you know, do you have any idea what you want to study? And they're like, no, dude, like I just finished my, <laughs> my sophomore, sophomore year of high school. Like, I'm not quite sure what I want to be at. I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I think that the fact that you can recruit players at such a younger age certainly has become a big part of the reason why so many more people commit earlier. Um, because those relationships start to form, um, and yeah, but it, I think it's difficult for the for the student um, because sometimes it's hard to know exactly what the perfect fit for you is going to be, and it's certainly hard for the colleges because you know a lot can change for a uh, you know a boy from the ages of 15 to 17 in terms of maturity, in terms of growth, um, in terms of work ethic. You know, some guys burn out, some guys are just getting started, and so. It, it certainly makes the, the landscape fairly challenging. Uh, but then it's also, you know, a, a fun part of it because uh, you're always looking for the guys that are going to fit in really well and be a part of your culture and um, guys that you want to spend time with and build your program around. And, um, you know, we are fortunate to ha have a great group of kids where, you know, they have these big dreams and they're, they're totally bought in to, to making it happen. So, when you get it right in recruiting, it can be uh, really fun, but it, it absolutely has become uh, more and more of a, of a challenge and more time consuming. Yeah, for sure. Um, what is your thoughts on specifically for tennis, but college athletes being able to be paid, you know, coming soon um, specifically for tennis, you know, as a company that revolves around tennis, you know, it's exciting stuff for us to be able to have, you know, potentially some college players, 
in college as, you know, Aerobar brand ambassadors and stuff like that. My question to you is like, how do you feel that's going to impact on all levels for you guys? You know what? It's one of those things. Like I, I hear the, the talks of all that stuff and I know it's coming. Um, to me, what I, what I'm really not nearly as knowledgeable as I could be, or I really don't know if they, they've made those decisions on what that's going to look like. Um, Right. You know, I think any anything we can do to create a great environment for our student athletes, whether that be a tennis player or anybody else, is a is a great thing. Um, and to, to have new opportunities that they can take advantage of, uh, if if things are set up the right way, where it it still uh, helps the model of college athletics just become better, uh, I'm all for it. Um, but in terms of like all the specifics, like I think some of it is, is we none of us really know exactly. You know, we know it's coming, but we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Um, and so in terms of specifically how I think it's going to, if I'm excited or unexcited, I kind of need to know more what they're going to say. But I am excited, you know, if we can find this a way just to make the, the, the college product uh, even more attractive and even better for, for more people to want to be a part of it, then, then I'm all for it. And I'm sure you guys are, uh, for, for obvious reasons, very excited to see how it can positively affect uh, Aerobar. Sure. Yeah, no, without question. And to sort of piggyback off of those topics, Coach, I have a couple more questions before we let you go. Some of these topics I think you'll enjoy. Some maybe a little bit less so, but we'll start with, the, I guess, the serious questions. Uh, you know, Andrew sort of talked about how recruiting has changed and for you now in the midst of a pandemic, obviously. Uh, everything I'm sure about your coaching experience has changed. And I'm curious, you know, how, what are some of the things you've done to stay in contact with your players to ensure that they're still, you know, doing whatever form of training they can right now? And then also, you know, have you been able to recruit at all? I know there's a dead period right now, but how has this impacted, you know, budgeting and all the things that go into recruiting moving forward? Well, in terms of moving forward, I mean, I think there's still a lot of question marks, and I'm sure a lot of that will revolve around uh, how college football and basketball do this year. Um, I'm sure that, that with all the pandemic and everything, budgets will will definitely be affected in some regard. But uh, as an in general, the biggest thing that's you know been different is, one, there's no tournaments going on. Two, we can't go to them. And three, we can't have anybody on campus right now. So really all you can do is, is sort of make phone calls. Um, and so, you know, that's that's sort of what we've tried to do as, as best we can. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for us, we've, we've kind of been in a bit of a holding pattern with recruiting just because there's so much uncertainty. Um, even in terms of the NCAA gave uh, not just the seniors from this year an opportunity to return, they gave every, every spring sport athlete um, – or I don't know if every spring sport, but certainly tennis, everybody a redshirt year. Um, so normally when we're recruiting for 2021-22, um, it would be with the idea that um, your rising seniors are going to be done after this year. Well, now they have an option of a fifth year. Um, and so even as you go to recruit that class, it makes it a lot more tricky to understand, you know, how much money are you freeing up, who's going to be there, who's not. Um, and so, yeah, the, the recruiting side of things has definitely gotten uh, very complicated right now. I can only imagine. And then from a scheduling perspective, and we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast started, it's now official. The Ivy League not going to be playing sports in the fall. Uh, curious just in general, you know, how you're feeling about 
tennis's prospects of returning at all during you know the 2020 2021 calendar year and you know what sort of compromises do you think might have to be made so to ensure that tennis can return yeah that's interesting did you say ivy leagues are having fall sports or are no 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 fall sports no fall sports interesting yeah so you know i'm hopeful that um by the spring you know the world seems like a very fluid place right now um and you know a few weeks ago we were all going into whatever our phase two phase three reopenings and you know the 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 trend was very upward and now all of a sudden places are spiking people are having to reclose and so it just seems to me like what what the world is going to look like uh in four or five months time is is just so hard to predict um but I'm very optimistic um, that for us, with our the big part of our season sort of being February on, um, is in, in that amount of time uh, that the world it, it very well is going to be a new norm. But I, I am very hopeful by then that uh, that our season will be able to go. I would imagine um, that a lot more schools will probably um, schedule regionally for the regular season. Um, to, to limit travel, to limit exposure, and I think that also helps everybody's budget. Um, uh, and so I would imagine the out-of-conference schedule may, may be a little more regional for a lot of schools, but uh, we are certainly hoping, preparing, and, and planning on, on playing. Well, to piggyback off of that, we'll do one fun question to follow up the serious question. Word on the street is no one can book a cheap flight quite like Trip Phillips. Is that true or false? Yeah, you you uh, you got good intel from from Ashley. Um, yeah, he, he, he's he's my kryptonite. He's, he's your secret weapon here. Uh, yeah, we uh, we we uh, are, are the best of friends and also traveled together there for for years. And um, yeah, the goal is to try to get from point A to point B as uh, as efficiently as possible. And so. Yeah, we we would grind, and we would uh, we would come up with some pretty creative ways to uh, to get it done. And yeah, back in my heyday, I had a, I had a bit of a gift for for coming up with uh, flights that would be uh, like unexplainably cheap. It was it was sort of a, uh, I was just looking for the glitches in the algorithms and, and, and looking to exploit weakness. Yeah, no, hey, we all have our talents. So, I mean, whatever works for you, Coach, yeah, absolutely go with it. I'm also not going to confirm that Ashley is or is not my source, but I'm sure as we go, uh, you'll be able to find out that answer. But, you know, i got to maintain the integrity of my journalism. Um, but, anyways, moving on, talking about your team, um, you know, this past 2020 season, I had the privilege of doing the play-by-play for the national indoors and, you know, up and through – Will and uh, Brian being up 5-4 in that first set breaker serving for the doubles point, it felt like your team was not only going to win the national indoors, but very well go on to compete and potentially win the NCAA title this year. You know, from a coaching perspective, because, you know, we've had the chance to talk to some of the players, but how difficult was it for you to have this season taken away? And, you know, again, knowing Will's still a little bit unclear, but the potential to have that roster back, how were you feeling about this 2020 team? Um, oh, man, well, you know, I love the team for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is just the, the culture and the leadership of the guys. was. I mean, it, it made it a lot of fun to come to work. 
but it was also a, a team that, that was absolutely going to get every every little percentage point out of its potential, um, which was really fun and gratifying to coach. And then the fact that that potential was so high. I mean, we had three top 10 in the world players, ITF, former ITF players on the team, uh, five in the top 40. I mean, we really had uh, as complete of a roster um, <laughs> as, as we've ever had. I um, mean, we've had some really good teams, but I, I do think that uh, that this team was really, really special. I think they all sensed it. Um, we were coming off of a year where we lost 4-3 in the – in the semifinals of NCAA's um, last match on third set to be in the finals the year before. Uh, but that was also, you know, William about two weeks before he had to have ankle surgery. And, you know, I know he, he was very much looking redemption and this year uh, was very healthy and very confident. Um, and we were just sort of excited to, to sort of build off of, of that year a few years earlier we lost a tight one in the finals and you know we we very much have been knocking on the door and uh you know i'm sure there's a few teams out there that very much believe that this was their year but uh for us yeah it was a, it was a pretty confident group and it was it was a, a great group of kids to work with i think and i mean i'm curious your thoughts on this i thought that loss in the indoor finals might have actually ended up being the best thing to happen for your team moving forward to prove that you guys could be beaten because I think it was you guys won like eight, nine of your first eight, nine matches, four to zero, and you were cruising through that national indoor final. And you sort of mentioned it there, the healthy will, the fact that, you know, the year before he had been dealing with a bunch of different things, you know, his freshman, sophomore year, you could argue he was the best player in college tennis, you know, not to make this the will show, but I can name, you know, three players who I've seen in college over the past 10 years. And yes, this shows you how big of a nerd I am. But you're just like, this guy feels like a sure thing. Uh, I mean, how helpful is it for your team when you have a healthy will like that at the top of the lineup? I mean, it makes it makes a huge difference. Um, yeah, I mean, when he's been healthy, uh, he, he doesn't he does not really lose. <laughs> I can't remember the, the exact numbers, but his freshman and sophomore year, it's something like, you know, 62 and three or something. I mean, it's, it's something absurd, whatever it is. Um, and then he, again, he, he came on hard times and it was a difficult time for him, but I'm really proud of the way he, he came back. Um, and like I said, stronger, you know, to me this year, he wasn't sort of back to freshman and sophomore. I mean, he, he's moving into a whole, whole new level for himself that he hasn't been in with his mental maturity and the way he's handling situations, the way he's approaching practice. So, you know, I was I was disappointed for our whole team, um, uh, but certainly certainly very sorry for him because he was having a great season. And you know, it's not to say the the year before he was there and he was ready and he played and and you know we lost, but but for us knowing we're walking out there with a, health, a healthy will, um, I think is is a you know I think the whole team can draw confidence off that and. You know, every team's going to have guys that are banged up, especially when you get to that stage of the tournament. And, you know, we had other guys on our team that were, were banged up at that point. But Will was definitely very healthy. Um, and we got a few guys on our team that, that I, I really do believe all have uh, very, very bright pro futures coming for themselves. And, and Will is certainly in that group.
Yeah, no. Ben and Rinky at three doubles is a joke. It just is a joke. It's like, come on, this might be the first doubles lineup where you think to yourself, coach, like, oh, I might not be able to crack it. And that speaks to how much talent that, you know, your team had this year on their roster. And, you know, again, hopefully you guys get the chance to bring it back. I'm sure you're going to try and, you know, I'm just going to ask the question anyways. You know, what? You know, 2016, you guys win the national indoors in Virginia. And I want to ask you about that moment. But that team, the 2017 that made the NCAA final or this year's team, which is the most talented you coached? Oh, geez. Um it's hard to say because that that team was was amazing in, in its own right. Um, I think, look on on based off of junior resumes, I think that, that this year's team is is definitely was probably the the, the best one um, because that team had some guys that in, in the juniors were a little unheralded, but they became the backbone of our program and then the progress and the development they had. By the time they were in that national championship match, I mean they they were you know, the, the best points we had and, and, and a huge part of the reason we were there, and, you know, you know, we, we had plenty of firepower at the top as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say, you know, I, I would, I would go to war with either one of those teams in, in a heartbeat either, either day. Um, no, I think that's completely fair. Now, I will also ask this because I've asked Braden and Ronnie as well. If you guys play that 2017 NCAA final outdoors, you think you have a better shot? Oh, you know, I, I mean, they were a great team, right? I mean, you know, the, the, these heartbreaking matches last year, we lost that heartbreaker 4-3. That was a great team too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like the, these matches are it's sort of a game of inches and um, – you know, they had J.C. Aragon playing number five, you know, and two months later he qualified at the U.S. Open, I think. So, you know, I mean, they, they were a loaded team. We were better outdoors um, in, overall in general, I think, uh, without a doubt. Um, and they may – I'm trying to remember. I have to really go through and look. But they were a great team, and we, we had played them. We would had some, some really good battles with them, and, um, you know, could it have made a difference? Who knows? But, I mean, they, they were very much worthy champions, and they, they played a great match that day. And I still thought we had our chances. You know, we had that that doubles point right on our racket as well. And the, if a couple things fall our way, I, I think we could have gotten it done. The Jack Murray backhand racket stab when Ty slaughters a forehand at him. I remember it. And Jack, it just trickles over to you guys fight off the first match point. Um, yeah, no, I mean, quietly that Virginia-UNC men's tennis rivalry might have been the best rivalry in college tennis over the past seven years. But, you know, I guess to flip the script on that, uh, a positive memory for you, to win the national indoor snap Virginia's ACC winning streak in Charlottesville, how special a moment was that for your program? Uh, yeah, it, it, it didn't suck. <laughs> No, it was it was great. I mean, like one, I was so happy for the, the first and foremost for our guys. They, you know, they put in so much work and they they had really done a great job to get there. And again, Virginia was was loaded and they did have a great team. Um, and they had kind of uh, really been dominating at that stretch. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was the first team national championship that that we had gotten, um, and that was certainly a big goal of ours. And um, for me, just to see, you know, the, the experience that was and when you go on those runs, I mean, it's, I think it's something that, that our guys will never forget. And so to get to be a part of that, um, 
you know, was, you know, was very special. The fact that it was against a rival like that, um, I don't know if it, if it changes anything. We have had some great, great matches with them, and we got a ton of respect for, for what they've done. Um, but I think we, we would have been equally as happy uh, in, in any scenario. But it was a pretty, pretty epic match, and, and they had a great crowd. And so to, a lot of times that's a neutral environment that you're playing in. Um, and in that one, it definitely was not. And so maybe maybe that made it more special. Yeah, no, I think we just found the title for this episode. It didn't suck. Uh, I think that that nails it. I'm, I'm perfect. I'm happy with that answer for sure. Um, again, just a, a couple of fun ones for you down the home stretch because we could go for an hour, but I don't, you know, for hours on end, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, again, while you're coaching right now, I'm sure Zoom calls are something your team is doing is turning to so my question to you in the weekly zoom meeting if you have you know you're you're the host you're in charge of everyone's audio if you could mute one player on your team during the meeting just because they're too distracting whatever it may be who are you muting and why oh that's an interesting one um ah that's a good one (laughs) still volunteer assistant coach jack murray yeah, that's in my mind. I was going back to Jack, and I was like, no, should I come up with somebody new? And there's no reason I'm picking on Jack like that. He's great in the meetings. It's just uh, Jack and I have a relationship where we give each other a hard time. So it was, I was my, my initial thoughts were either him or our strength coach, who is uh, hilarious and a great guy and an amazing strength coach. But we also tend to give each other a hard time. But I figured uh, I'll give James Askew a shout-out here. <laughs> No, that's perfect. Uh, and again, from here, just sort of rapid firing through a couple of questions. True or false, 2006 U.S. Open. You asked Babolat for new rackets. They said, quote, we don't carry that model anymore. Yeah, I didn't I didn't change very well. They, that's true. That's true. They, they so like, started making that like seven years earlier, and they were not going to start making it again for me on short notice. So you were just a guy who stuck with the equipment he had? Yeah, like I, I was playing with the original Prince Graphite, like all the way through college, <laughs> in, into my pro career. And I remember being back in, in Chapel Hill and in the locker room, and Coach Paul had these these pictures of like old pro tennis players. Um, and he racked out, it was like this guy, I don't, I can't remember who the player was, but they were wearing shorts that cut off like, you know, a foot and a half above their knee. You know, just some ridiculous headband, and they were playing with the same racket I played with. And I kind of looked at that, and I was like, okay, that 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 literally was the moment when I was like, all right, I gotta I gotta change. Um, and so I found a Babolat that I liked, and they sort of discontinued that model. Like, it took me forever to find one I liked, and so I bought just a ton of them, and I, I kept kept it going as yeah. long as I could. No, I mean, evidently it worked for you, right? You don't top 30 in the ATP. If it it ain't broke, don't fix it. Nothing wrong with that. Um, All right, let's keep going. Uh, Again, during your career, as you alluded to, I know you played quite a bit of doubles with Ashley Fisher, of course, now a college head coach as well. And, uh, you know, for you guys, I think the record was a confidant of the podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll neither confirm nor deny. But yeah, I sent some texts around. I'll also say Jack Murray, someone who I grew up, I wouldn't say training with because he was way better than me, but in the vicinity of the same club, you know, two courts down, I guess, would be the best way to approximate that. Um, so a couple of sources here and there. Um, but, you know, for you guys, in your, I think your very first tournament you played, you ended up winning 125K together. And I'm curious because, you know, when you're coaching college tennis teams, as great as it can be to keep teams together for a couple of years, you know, I think of like Will and um, Bo played together for a couple of years. But, uh, you know, how important is chemistry to having uh, professional success in doubles? Because I'm sure everyone's pretty good at the sport. Yeah, I, I, I do think there's something to be said for that. Um, and I think it, it has to do with personality as well as sort of game styles. I mean, you certainly need somebody uh, that, you know, complements the things that you do well and, and maybe helps you out on some of the things that, that you know, other people are trying to pick on. Um, and, and then you also have to, like, you know, it's you're, you're out there and, and competing and battling together. So... Um, you know, having similar mentalities and, and kind of understanding, you know, how to try to make him better on a day when he's not having his best day and, and vice versa. If you're struggling, he sort of knows how to push your buttons and get you going, um, you know, because everybody's very good and the, the margins are small. So I, I think that, that that does play into it quite a bit. Yeah, I feel like a doubles relationship is like any relationship, right? It gets physical. You've got to offer each other emotional support. Um, it, it is just like any other relationship. Uh, yeah, I try to say that most of my relationships, I try not to let them be physical. But <laughs> <laughs> no, you. First of all, I've seen the I've seen the amount of hand slapping that goes on on a Tar Heel doubles team. I feel like that is, that's still physical. Yeah, we did. We did get a couple of like a real aggressive high fives at certain times. <laughs> uh, no, no, yeah, it it is. I mean, you travel together and like. You know, you mentioned Ashley, like we, we traveled together all the time and, um, you know, got to be very close, lifelong friends. And, uh, you know, he, he was a guy, you know, I didn't have a huge serve, but the way he could take up the net and cut things off sort of made up for that. And a few of the things I did, I think, helped him. So, you know, we, we had a lot of success, but more importantly, I think we just really enjoyed each other. Um, and and that that allowed us to kind of stay with it for for a long time, and, and it, it definitely, uh, you know, between him and Stephen Huss and, and some of the other guys out there, you know, some of those are guys I, I still am very good friends with and, and share some some amazing memories with. Yeah, no, and you know, again, from what I've heard about Young Trip, it sounds like if it would have been financially prudent of you to file your taxes jointly with Ashley, you would have because it just would have made sense. So, you know, to take advantage of the scheme, why not do it? Um, but no, you sort of alluded to it then, you know, you have so many lifelong friends, not only still within the game of tennis, but in particular in the coaching ranks. And we've mentioned a bunch of them. You could also talk about guys like Chris Drake, who I know was around at that time. And you can really go just around uh, college tennis and find these sorts of former players, former pros, now coaches is it fun for you does it add an added element of competitiveness to still be competing against guys you've competed against your entire life yeah i mean you know i think the competing i, I don't necessarily enjoy playing a coach that i know more than a coach i don't what, what i do enjoy is uh it keeps me in touch with a you know as you get older especially when you live in different places you don't always stay in touch with with people equally um but uh, to get to see him in the fall and go grab dinner and catch up or 
um, you know, just to have, you know, so much, you know, we play a common team and call to get a little scouting. You know, it is a lot of fun to have so many people that I've known since I was, you know, even, you know, getting to reconnect with Mark um, as we were recruiting uh, one of his players. Like, it just sort of brings you back to people that, that you share a lot of great memories with. And, and that, without a doubt, I think uh, makes what we do more enjoyable. Well, that gets me to my last question. True or false, the Aerosmith uh, Zap relationship was almost a deal breaker for you. Uh, I'll say true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to watch Logan play a couple times to realize he was not quite as volatile as Mark. And, <laughs> and once, I, once I realized that, it was back on. No, it was. Uh, he's done an amazing job with him, um, and so yeah, it, it was actually the most fun part of uh, recruiting that year was uh, talking to Mark on a daily basis, and we've we've kept it going ever since he committed, and that's it's been a ton of fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, perfect. Well, then on that note, that seems the perfect place to end. Again, Coach Phillips, uh, congratulations to you and the UNC program for all of the success you guys have had. And, you know, hopefully we'll get the chance to talk to you again on the podcast because I did leave some questions on the table. I feel like I could have done 45 minutes on Robert Kelly, uh, but I'll save that topic for another time. So, you know, again, Coach, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Hope all of you enjoyed our conversation with UNC Men's Tennis Associate Head Coach Trip Phillips. And again, huge thank you to Trip for taking the time to chat with us for being such a great support with all of our questions. Um, again, it's very clear to me why the UNC team is able to attract the sort of recruits that they do when you have a coaching staff like Sam Paul, like Trip Phillips. And hopefully we'll get to see this UNC roster come back in 2021 because you know, this 2020 team had a chance to do some really special things, and, you know, you could hear the excitement in Coach Phillips' voice when I asked him about it, and so hopefully we get the chance to see that, and again, a huge shout-out to him, Coach Paul, for all of the success they are having down in Chapel Hill. Of course, this is not the only episode, though, we have done over these past couple of weeks. There are so many storylines, I should say, over these past couple of days. There are so many storylines to monitor right now from throughout the tennis world. If you want to hear more about our event we did in Nicholasville, as well as the new WTA International event they are going to be hosting there August 10th to the 16th of this year, go check out the GSP we released with John Sanders, tournament director, head of the Top Seed Tennis Club in Kentucky. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation. We talk about the EXO event our team was at, as well as what fans can expect from the WTA event, as well as the logistics of planning a WTA event in the midst of a global pandemic. A fascinating conversation. I think all of you listeners are going to enjoy that, so be on the lookout for that. Of course, as I mentioned at the top of this mini-break, there are also so many other storylines going around, so be sure to monitor the mini-break. Have a really good episode coming tomorrow about some of the new things we've learned about the business implications about this pandemic with Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick. He's coming back on the show to talk about PPP loans, to talk about if China does cancel their WTA events this year, how devastating is that for the WTA? All of that and more will be the focus of tomorrow's mini break podcast. And then, of course, again, all the interviews we did down in Miami for JC's event down in Nicholasville for the WTA Act. So you can find all of those interviews on our Cracked Interviews podcast as well as our YouTube channel over the next two weeks. You don't want to miss out on any of it. So be sure to hit that subscribe button. Speaking of all of that, 
that content. Huge shout-out goes out to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. We are seriously here. Uh, we've got so much fun stuff for us in the queue. Uh, we can't wait to share it with you listeners, and we wouldn't be able to share any of it without the and tons of work put behind the scenes by Westoff and Fliegner. So shout out to the both of them. Shout out to the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15. Also, if after all of these weeks you haven't ordered up yourself some arrow bars, you're making a mistake, go to AeroBar.com. Use that promo code CRACKED15. Uh, for sure, you'll get 15% off your uh, order of arrow bars, but more importantly, you'll find the breakfast alternative you will be using moving forward. I can guarantee you that. Uh, but with all that being said, again, if you've missed any of our content, be sure to tune into the website, CrackedRackets.com. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, it's all at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. Uh, but with that being said, again, for our wonderful friends, Mark uh, Aerosmith and Andrew Golub at Aerobars, our incredible guest, associate head coach of the UNC men's tennis team, Trip Phillips, our super producers, Max Fleeker, Daniel Westoff, our friends at both Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks? That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.